This is a good thing. All right, gentlemen, why don't we begin with a prayer, and then Dr. Wither will take away with the, uh, with the class. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full <coughs> of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mother of God, pray for us, now at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. Seat of wisdom, pray for us. St. Faustina, pray for us. In the name of the Father. The Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. A couple of housekeeping things just before we begin the class tonight. So we're off for Columbus Day next week, uh, just so you all know that. And the papers are due on the 19th, which you all know that as well. So those can be emailed as an attachment to me so I can look at them and grade them that week. Um, we're going to, on the, on the, uh, what was that? 19th. The 19th, um, Dr. Ed Meckman, who is um, very much involved with, with the fight against assisted suicide here in New York, is going to be uh, teaching us about the issues regarding the laws with assisted suicide as it pertains to euthanasia as we transition into that part of, of the semester. Um, so the two documents I'm going to ask you to read, both can be found online. Uh, the first one is called Now and at the Hour of Our Death, which is a document the bishops put out from New York State regarding this whole issue. So Now and at the Hour of Our Death. And the second document to read, both of them are relatively short. second one is To Live Each Day with Dignity. To Live Each Day with Dignity, put out by the USCCB a number of years ago regarding issues pertaining to uh, euthanasia, assisted suicide, all those um, medical ethic issues. On the 26th, Dr. Wither will come back to us and finish the lesson she could not finish last week and kind of complete that section. And that will kind of close the book formally on the sexual ethics part of the class as we kind of move into the medical ethics section uh, from that point forward. Uh, from after Beckman teaches us and uh, with her finished on the 26th, then it's me the rest of the way through. So enjoy what you have then here at Guest Lectures, and they had me until the end of the semester. So that's uh, what we're looking at as you move forward here. Okay? Um, any questions? All right, I do with her. So they're all yours. Okay, so I thank you guys for, for your patience. I, um, I was going to jump back to this slide to make sure that I, I just uh, covered some key points. But before we do go on, does anybody have any pressing questions they, they really want to ask before we jump into this again? Okay. A lot of times I'll put them in the parking lot and let them wait there so we can answer them. But we didn't get through a lot. So, uh, But I did want to jump to this slide, which we covered towards the end of um, our session last week. And then one other thing, can you all see the whole screen? Yes. Yes. Okay. yes. And then do you know how to kind of manage your um, images of the 
the 21 people if you need to, see how many uh, you want to see, or you know, you can, you can modify those images using the icons up on top if you just want to, I don't want to say play with them, but kind of work through that. Um, you know, you, this way you have a little more control and it's just good to get used to. So I'll keep going unless somebody uh, jumps in there and stops me. But just a couple things relative to contraception. I, I wanted to pay attention on this slide. So we, we have that, the barrier and spermicide methods, and particularly the condoms and diaphragms. Those have been around for a very long time, and they're just kind of spur of the moment things. They're not really convenient, which is why, you know, it's it, they're just there. It was the hormonal methods that really gave the convenience to not only women, but couples. You know, no must, no fuss. You take a pill every day and it solved the problem. Um, you know, the, the tubal ligation and the vasectomy have been also along for a very long time. The behavioral methods are really the withdrawal method, which is not artificial, but is still, um, you know, it's, it's non-procreative. But the thing I, I wanted to make sure I stress to you is about these LARCs, long-acting reversible contraceptives. These are getting, they are, and they're continuing to get very popular for a number of reasons, um, particularly with young girls and a lot more too with the Hispanic community because they are long acting anywhere from three to now like 12 years. You put one in and it stays in. And so for that number of years, you just don't give birth control a thought. Um, when you're done or when you're ready to take it out or if you have problems, they simply remove it. So this is something just to kind of be aware of that term larks. Um, and, and sometimes the physicians and the, the healthcare people see this as just an easy answer to solving their patients' um, issues. I'll talk next the next time about some of the consequences of these, but we know there have been um, a lot of issues, health-related consequences of using any of these. So uh, we'll talk about those a little later, as opposed to the natural family planning, which again, um, I added my couple pieces in red on here, but NFP works with the body, uh, gives you knowledge of what's happening with the woman's body. And that means you have periodic abstinence. You know, a woman is only fertile or can get pregnant only six to nine days out of the month. So it seems um, unwise to take a pill with 28 to 30 days a month when there's only a few of those days that you really are protecting protecting against uh, conception. So with that, the way this, um, you know, it actually works is every day a woman has to do something, whether she manually observes certain signs and then documents or charts them, or even today where she might be wearing what we're going to talk about wearable devices, including, you know, like a smartwatch or an Apple watch where it's kind of automatic, but still every day there is a measurement or an observation that um, the woman and hopefully the woman and, the, and her husband have to somehow pay attention to. And the goal and down on the bottom here is it really is giving women and couples self-knowledge and it, it's a goodness and a lot of women are wanting that and there are an awful lot of husbands who you know what they want the best for their wives and they don't want their wives having chemicals or synthetic hormones in her body 
So I just wanted to kind of bring that up um, before we move on. Now, I'm going to jump to, um, I skipped past a couple that, uh, that we had, but this is where we left off, I believe, last uh, last week. So contraception, we have always you know, heard, and, and I believe it's true, it has contributed to the culture of death kind of in two ways. Number one, and they're, they're related to the procreative and unitive meanings of the sexual act, but in terms of the unitive act or unitive meaning of sex, you know, it's made it into a recreational activity that everyone has a right to. So why get married if you can have sex without marriage? That said, if sex isn't a reason to get married or if sex is no longer uh, a reason to get married, then it's no longer a reason to stay married. So if you are at risk for not surviving your marriage in just some tense times, that just gives you one more reason that makes it easier to say, I'm going to give up on this. You know, marriages without children are easier to walk away from. So what this has done also is, you know, it's just led to an increase in adultery. Now, that may not be a big deal as much as it used to be years past because um, actually about two weeks ago, there was a uh, Pew Research study done. It was published in LifeSite News that said, over 50% of Christians believe that extramarital sex is either sometimes or always okay or permissible. So, you know, we've got lots of ground to cover. And in your ministry, in your, um, you know, in your uh, uh, diaconate, there, there's just going to be all of this. And I hope by the end of this, we can look at what might your role be in just moving the tip one one spot that says, can I do something? And I think there is. Um, relative to, uh, so those are ways that contraception denigrates the unitive meaning of the sexual act. It also denigrates the meaning of the procreative aspect of sexual love because um, we've removed babies from the, the sex act itself. So once you remove that, you know, you remove children themselves from the picture. There is that prevailing dis disconnection between sex and the babies, which you used to have. So now we don't view children as gifts, but as liabilities and spoilers of a pleasurable lifestyle. So that that's a whole other area that we have to deal with. Um, let me just kind of move on here. So taking a look at, um, you know, the earthquake that people were so upset that um, the church did not change its condemnation of contraception. Well, first of all, let's take a look at the broadening meanings of sexual intercourse over the ages. So the first theological formal condemnation of contraception came with St. Augustine, uh, I guess no surprise, back in the 400s. So what I did, this, this um, I'm going to see if I can so this is um, a chart that I built from this Meanings of Human Sexuality by uh, Father Sellings. And this first column really represents kind of a moment or a period in time that had an, uh, an effect on the meaning of sexual intercourse. This second column is what's the primary um, meaning of the sexual act? And then the third column is, and then what else might there be? So if we just take a look at this, 
St. Augustine, when, because of who he was, he had declared that the only reason for sexual intercourse is procreation. There was no other meaning or reason for it. Now, people used it, he acknowledged, to satisfy their needs, but that was still seen as a venial sin, at least by the requesting party. Um, and this stayed this way through St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, you know, uh, we know that Trent uh, formally, formally um, declared that marriage was a sacrament. It stayed all that way until um, towards the end of the seventh, 18th century, the late 1700s, when we were coming into the Industrial Revolution. So at that point, you know, 80% of the um, uh, people worked in on farms in their homes. So um, they were having large families and children were labor. So the large family had a role in the economic uh, success of, the, of their uh, family. But more and more then, the uh, things got urbanized and, and manufacturing went to the cities. So people were getting out of their houses and going into the city. And so the theologians at the time decided they needed to develop some moral handbooks to, to deal with the issue of what happens when you know there's this desire for more sexual intercourse. So not only was procreation at that point considered still the, the focus, but there was more or less a secondary meaning for sexual intercourse, and that was to remedy concupiscence. Now, concupiscence is that those disordered desires. Remedy doesn't mean necessarily to relieve that, but to transform it. Because if you if you didn't remedy or resolve the concupiscence, it was going to pop up somewhere else, maybe an avarice or covetousness. So it was at least seen that was a justification that a number of theologians said that takes away any kind of sin, even venial, um, because it is it is definitely an okay thing. Now, a few years later, um, well, a number of years later, the Code of Canon Law did not really um, declare anything relative to sexual intercourse, but that's where at first time they talked about the primary and secondary end of marriage itself. So the primary end was considered procreation and the education of children. But there was a secondary end that was called mutual health and they kept the remedy concupiscence in there. So this is the first time we're getting that something's first and then something comes as second, formally. Pope Pius XI actually applied what was in canon law to sexual intercourse. So he used this idea of Procreation is the primary meaning or the primary end, but there was a big breakthrough. He at that point acknowledged that, you know, sexual intercourse is also meant for mutual love. And this was a big deal because it recognizes that that's where, as you can see, you know, that procreative meaning has always been there. Little by little, that unitive meaning is coming to light. Um, in 1951, Pope Pius XII continued that uh, procreation as the primary end, but he adds moderate pleasure. So again, things are developing. It wasn't until 1965 and, and Vatican II, of course, which uh, Paul VI ended, in Gautam et Spes, which was that pastoral constitution that was the last document written, where there was a little bit of a break. And actually, Vatican II, um, you could almost say, almost rewrote the language that was used to discuss conjugal love. And it was discussed more as conjugal love as opposed to 
sexual love or se the sexual act. And, and they don't necessarily use the term in Adam and Eve's essential ends, but they talk about sexual love as fully human, total, faithful, and exclusive, and being procreated in terms of responsible parenthood. So you'll remember back in the Humanae Vitae from last week where there were those four characteristics of love, and these were them. So, and they're listed all as one. They weren't in this second column or in this third column. It was all, those four were essential to the sexual act. So then uh, after, you know, Vatican II ends and Paul VI um, decides he needs to declare on this, what he does is he puts the procreative and the unitive meanings together. Not one versus other. So now, you know, um, some theologians have argued that, you know, change was already beginning where we move from these primary procreative ends to something different at Vatican II. Um, on the other hand, Pope Paul VI felt that, you know, I'm just actually um, upgrading the secondary end to say, you know, the meaning of, of sex is not first versus second. These are both equal um, and inseparable purposes or ends of the sexual act. So that's how that has developed. And actually, this brings us to what we talk about, the development of doctrine in the church. So when Pope Paul VI wrote or, or was planning and writing Humanae Vitae, his intention was to answer new questions. So the previous, let's go back here, the previous um, major document, which was Costa Canubi, answered the question, what must be included um, when you consider that sexual act. And you had to have that procreative end, um, at least, um, needed to be there, which meant that during the infertile times, he did not intend that you should have engage in the sexual act. What Paul VI did is he said, asked the question, what, or he asked, can procreation be excluded from that marital act? And do, what does your intention need to be? And what it turned out to be, because Pope Pius XII already had ruled here, or declared in 1951, that it is okay to engage in the sexual act during the infertile time, knowing that you probably are not going to conceive a child. But it was already growing. So we're going to look a little bit at how some of these um, teachings of the church, some of them, can develop, because with experience and with studying... Hello. Hello, Gary. Uh, Fantastic. Good? Daniel, Daniel, turn it off, please. Okay. You're muted, please, guys. Thank you. Okay, good. So we're going to take a look at a little bit of this. Uh, first of all, um, now on your handouts, You'll notice sometimes I do two or three slides, but it's one handout because I do overlays. So just to give you a little bit of sense also then of what was going on from a timeline perspective, um, we know that Vatican II and Humanae Vitae were 60, you know, 62 to 65 and 68, but let's look at what was happening beforehand. So I just took the lines off so that I can fit a little bit more, but already in, um, oops, Already in 1900, there was already the first birth control congress happening in Paris. And up until that point, um, 
at all Christian churches, there was undivided opposition to contraception. In 1930, Pope Paul or Pope Pius XI wrote Costa Canubi on chaste marriage. Now, the reason, part of the reason he did that is in the 20s, we're going to see that um, uh, science was really picking up. They were learning a lot of things about ovulation and the timing of hormones. Um, that's when Margaret Sanger started and created the first birth control clinic in Brooklyn. Um, but the first International Birth Control uh, Congress started in, in 1900. The Anglican bishops at their Lambeth conference in the spring of 1930 um, broke from the tradition of um, condemning artificial contraception, and they gave qualified and controlled access to of contraception to married couples. So Pope Pius XI felt on one hand he had to respond to that for the Catholic Church, and it was literally the last day of 1930 on December 31st that he uh, promulgated Coste Canubi. He also probably did it because it was the 50th anniversary of a, another document on marriage that Pope uh, Leo XIII had written. But that was critical at that time. So Costi Canubi reiterated that contraception is um, not allowed. And until the mid-50s and 60s, again, within the Catholic Church, there was no opposition. It was just understood that's the way it was. I'm waiting. There we go. So in the 50s and 60s is when there was, uh, you know, just massive development and marketing of the birth control pill. It was actually developed and approved in 1957, but not for contraception in the United States. It was for um, uh, menstrual disorders, painful and irregular menstrual cycles. And it was actually in 1960 that it was approved by the FDA and used. So by the time Vatican II came around, there were about 12 million women already using the birth control pill worldwide, about six and a half million in the United States. So you can understand why Paul VI wanted to keep it out of Vatican II and not start the debate. Of course, um, a lot of people thought that a couple is being responsible if they took the pill because they were doing something about family planning. Now, if it worked, that was great. If it didn't and the woman got pregnant, um, you know, it was just the slippery slope, Roe v. Wade, where abortion was allowed. And if you didn't go on the pill and you got pregnant, now all of a sudden abortion is another, it's a, let's just say, a reactive way of contraception. So you see the, the slippery slope starting. Ten years to the date after Humane Vitae was promulgated, July 25th, 1968, and this was July 25th, 1978, the first test tube baby was born. Louise Brown was her name. She's still alive today. Um, and that was really the first in vitro fertilization um, that came to light. So you see the slippery slope. Now, if you look, the blue represents church um, movements or uh, moments. The red is what's happening in the secular world. So Pope John Paul II comes on board. Again, this, this happened in July of 1968. Um, in, uh, I think it was October when John Paul was elected. And he was, of course, just a couple things, and he's written so much, but two things that I thought were, were significant is he talked about the new evangelization, having a new ardor and new methods. And um, that's what he was looking to do now. He was a key advisor to Pope Paul VI on writing Humanae Vitae. In fact, prior to that, some of you may know of his um, uh, book, Love and Responsibility, where he talks about um, 
the personalist use of uh, sexual love from a philosophical perspective. So somebody without faith or access to revelation could still read that and understand, you know, that these experiences ring true. Nevertheless, um, we have what, what we call theology of the body. And what that really is, is um, when he, when his pontificate started, I think it was about a year later, and for five years at his Wednesday general audiences, he talked about this idea of uh, sexual love. And after people's the theologians started realizing there was a theme to it. And that was all pulled together what we know today as theology of the body. And this was done, we all believe, um, in response to the crisis of Humanae Vitae because people just literally um, saw, you know, they put it, just didn't listen at all. And all of a sudden the church was incredible. So that's something we're going to talk a little bit more about. I, we're going to, I'm going to show you a little bit of our, um, uh, what we do in Precana. I will tell you, because those are real adults that were preparing for marriage. Some of them want to be married in the church. Some of them come along with the fiance that does want to get married in the church. Some of them know about the church teachings. Many of them don't. But we would never talk about the document, Helani Vitae. What we do talk about is this work called Theology of the Body, because it was a contemporary understanding or a contemporary language that uh, John Paul used that really started to speak to the young people. Uh, just to go down the line, of course, after um, Pope John Paul II, Benedict XVI didn't really proclaim or write too much about um, this topic, he had his uh, Deus Caritas, Ask God is Love, and he reflects a little bit in there the different kinds of love, including erotic love, but he really doesn't go towards uh, the teaching of Humanae Vitae. But that said, our current Pope um, wrote uh, 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 or promulgated Amoris Letizia, which is in 2016. It was the culmination of the two synods on marriage and the family. So I don't know if you remember, but there was an extraordinary synod on marriage and the family in uh, 2014, and then in 2015 had another one. And this was that post-synodal apostolic um, writing uh, on, on love and marriage. It's a really good document. In there, he specifically does um, uh, stand with Humane Vitae Articles 11 and 12, which remember those are the heart of the matter. So he's in line with that, which is great to hear. So just a little bit, we're still in that vein that, you know, Humane Vitae is still, you know, being proclaimed as it's a, it's a truth that we need to live by. So we're going to look, talk about appealing to both faith and reason because we do need to do that very much so. As you know from uh, John Paul II. Ah, oh, come on. Very well, microphones, guys. Come on. Sorry. Console eight four five six nine zero zero four five eight. All the mics should be muted. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, okay. So, as Pope John Paul said in Fidesz at Ratio. You know, faith and, and reason are like two wings on which the spirit rises to contemplation of the truth. I think this, this is critical for some people, for some young couples, for some uh, college students. Faith is a great starting point. 
um, scripture, tradition, magisterium, because that's where they are. They're comfortable with that because they've been raised that way. Sure. But for some, the starting point is going to be reason-based, whether it's evidence or experience that they've seen from you know, fellow couples, whether it's actual science or whether it's using just their, their reasoning. So something that I had had um, uh, uh, just this past summer in a family life I didn't follow what you said. I said muted. Can you please. Oh, this is a struggle with weather. Microphones are on. Please mute them now. Bob, it should be a little thing in your in your Zoom that allows you to mute it. Yeah, I'm trying I'm trying to follow it. I got the cast. I'm left. I'm right handed. I got the cast on. Okay, well, give us a second here. Uh, uh, come on. We're still on, Bob. The bottom left-hand part of the screen is a little thing. This is mute. If you hit that, it'll, it'll be the That's screen. That's Do you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, on the bottom left of the screen, you'll see it there. Put your cursor, Bob. That's why you don't see it, Bob. Put your cursor. All the way on the bottom left, and then you'll see a microphone and a stop video. Click on the microphone and it will mute it. Sorry, doctor. Shall we, shall we go? He'll be okay probably, yes? Is he getting somebody to help him? I think so, yeah. is it's great if we get our families to where faith faith is the source of the warmth in our homes and that was a quote that i thought was so so helpful because it's not a, a, a demanding kind of thing it's the warmth in your home and if you can get your children to where um 
you know, their understanding and their loving God and Jesus and the faith, it's going to be more difficult them to for them to leave when they hit the culture because the culture is pretty strong and powerful. So you have a better chance if that's happening in your houses. If not, you know, as we know from Pew, Pew Research Studies, religion is on a steep decline. Our youth is particularly hard hit. Now, um, a couple, uh, probably two months now, um, Father Robert Spitzer, I don't know if anybody knows him. I don't know if you do, Father Chris. I don't, yeah, I'm not real vain. I don't, I don't know, yeah. He, he's a Jesuit who, um, he tells the story, I mean, he's phenomenal. And he says, I go and I talk to high school kids and they're blown away that somebody knows the answers to all of their questions. Because what he said is growing up, I had a mom who was in love with Jesus. It didn't take anything for her to have the faith. He said, that wasn't the case with me. And he said, I was getting a little nervous. I was going into high school and then to college. And I was fearful that I was going to lose my faith. And, and on top of it, not only could I not defend it at school, but, you know, I just was going to lose it. So he actually is, he's, um, he's debated Stephen Hawking. He's been on the History Channel. And what he said is use reason because some people, you know what? That warm, fuzzy faith just doesn't ring true to them, even if they were raised in that kind of family. They just have those science minds. Um, so anyway, he, he's on CredibleCatholic.com. Um, he in himself is um, very charismatic. So when he speaks to the kids, he's almost totally blind. He's hoping to have some stem cell research or some stem cell therapy done, but it's not approved yet. But I think that's the case, and we use that a lot in our pre-Cana because the, the faith doesn't always speak to uh, the people that we have. So let's take a real quick look at that faith perspective, and then we'll go to the reason base. So God created us really with the purpose of getting us to heaven so that we could be in union with him. So in order to do that, what we need to do is know God so that we know how to live. And because of that, he gave us revelation. He revealed to us truth that we need to make it back to him. And our response to God is faith. You know, this is what I believe, and I do believe I will trust. So that's how that relationship helps us to figure out how to live. Now, Jesus is that one source of revelation. God gave us his life, and now what we need to do is give our lives to God in this regard. The way we come to know revelation through Jesus is through scripture and tradition which is then safeguarded by the magisterium. So the magisterium is actually our teaching authority that, you know, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, will safeguard that, roll where it's necessary. But what that gives us is what my response needs to be to these teachings of the church, these saving teachings. So based on that, my response may be different based on different teachings. So this um, document, I pulled this chart together, and it's based on a teaching or a book from Richard Gallardis, who's a, a pretty famous uh, theologian. It's called Teaching with Authority. He takes a lot of his points from Father Francis Sullivan, who's a Jesuit, who actually uh, was uh, in Rome at the time of Vatican II. He, he died you know, about a year ago now, I think. And... Um, he talked about what role does the magisterium teach and how, what is our response to each of those teachings. So 
So just as an example, and these are his rendition of how we can look at this. I don't believe this is written anywhere unless it's, it's happened and I don't know about it, but there are different levels of church teaching. The first one is dogma, which is irreformable. It's, it's definitive and it's taught with the charism of infallibility. And you just simply make an ascent of faith or an act of faith um, when you do, when you're baptized and all through your life. Okay. There's a category that he calls definitive doctrine. And it's not divinely revealed teaching, but we firmly accept it and we hold it to be true. And those are things he says it categorizes as like, um, you know, the, can, the canon of the Bible, you know, which books are in there. And we hold those to be true, even though they weren't divinely revealed. Um, the saints who are canonized, we hold that those truly are saints and they're in heaven, even though that wasn't divinely revealed, except it is connected to divine revelation in some way. Now, this next box is where Humane Vitae is going to fit, and that's why it's yellow, okay? Um, of course, Humane Vitae just stirred up all of this dissent and controversy. And so this uh, category he calls authoritative doctrine or non-definitive doctrine. Now, these are his words exactly. He says, what is called for from the believer is a religious docility of will and intellect. So what says, what we are, the way we need to respond is we need to strive to assimilate that into our religious stance, still recognizing there is a remote possibility of church error. So many of the teachings, particularly the moral teachings, particularly in bioethics and sexuality teachings, fall into here. And a part of the thought is just as you saw how um, that, uh, broadening meaning of sexual intercourse had gone on, it may just be that this teaching isn't finally matured yet. And you see that things are changing. So you're open to it. Now, this religious docility of will and intellect um, says it has an obediential character. So you truly do um, to be in, in, you know, in good standing with, you know, your God need to try to understand that. And a couple ways you can do that, if, if you need to move anybody in this in this regard, is first of all, you know, you ask someone who really disagrees with this and who's truly as a stance, but they can't buy into this teaching. You know, um, can you engage in a fuller study and let them study some of the the teachings and some of the things that support this teaching? Second of all, are they somebody who you can ask to examine their conscience? Now, there are an awful lot of people, I believe, who make decisions and never consult their conscience, as Janet Smith would say. Um, so again, it's something that from a, if, you, if you're appealing to somebody on a faith basis, can you ask them to examine their conscience? And is it they really just cannot see that this is a teaching that you know, God really wants, sees as true? Or is it just that perhaps if it is true, they're going to they're gonna have to ask themselves some serious questions about, you know, do they need to change their lifestyle and are they ready and willing to do that? Again, you know, putting your pastoral bent on it, you, you know, you, you'll recognize when it's appropriate to bring that up. And then just to, to wrap up this table, there's a, a final category that he gives, and I added just that it finishes the table, prudential admonitions and provisional uh, 
applications. So again, this is different than the top three where it, it specifically is provisional. It's not definitive. Um, let me just jump up on this one. So of course, this one is non-infallible. And when Humani Vitae was released, the Vatican Press Office did explain that it was a non-infallible document at that point. So I believe it is still held as that. It's non-definitive, but it's still authoritative. So if you go to the doctor and he still doesn't have a cure for cancer, you know, he's still authoritative. He's got a lot more study under his belt than we do. So on this last one, the provincial uh, prudential admonitions and provisional applications, those have to do with the discipline life of the church, like um, Eucharistic fast, you know, Friday fasting, um, even priestly celibacy. So um, you still have that obedience to it, even though it may not lead to sin. So that's a little bit of how we as believers or believers are supposed to respond if you truly seek you know, to be united with God one day in heaven. Now, I want to take a few slides to show you how we um, address some of these things with the young people we see in Precana. So this slide gives you kind of a, um, uh, the theme of what the next few are going to look like. This is uh, the kind of the cover of our uh, Precana uh, day. Uh, our logo is the two hearts combined, so it looks like a Trinitarian image. Joined in love is the title of our pre-cana. By the way, that's only one component of our marriage prep program. It's an in-person day of uh, faith experience and testimony. And we've definitely had a lot more catechesis to it. But um, one thing, and this is, so you can see now on your handouts, I only, you know, I don't do the builds as much, but accepting the invitation. Now, when we built this new pre-cana day, uh, it was only two years ago. Um, we really needed to look at where are the young people, and we want them to be, to see this um, formation, if you will, as credible. And so we created seven videos by Spirit Juice Studios, which is the Catholic production company that um, does Father or Bishop Barron's um, videos, Word on Fire, uh, the World Youth Days, and a lot of those. So there were seven videos. The first one is Cardinal Dolan kicks us off. It's about a three and a half minute video. And it really just sets the tone for the day. I mean, you all know him and his, and his charism. I think something that describes Cardinal Dolan is he has this theology of invitation. And so in, in that video, and I would show it to you, but I don't think it's going to come across real well via Zoom. So you're just going to get this little bit. In that video, he invites the couples kind of to three things. Number one, um, can you grow and learn more about your fiance's faith if you have different faiths or your Catholic faith if you're both Catholic? Second, can you grow in your prayer life, whether it's individually or together? Can you grow in that realm? And then thirdly, um, can you get to Mass together, Sunday Mass? And that was one of our goals of our pre-Cana is Sunday Eucharist. So I say that using this slide, but I really wanted to point you to where he talks about inviting couples in the area of NFP. Now, we're going to go to our Family Life website in a little bit, but Cardinal Dolan, we have a two-minute video from him talking to the young, a young adult group at St. Patrick's Cathedral after one of the young adult masses. And, you know, he sat there and asked for questions. And of course, one of the questions was about this. He does a nice job. And here was his twist on it. He says, everyone knows that we should respect the integrity of creation because God built this beautiful balance and choreography in our bodies. 
And he said, we don't want to tamper with it or spoil it with chemicals or devices that disrupt this beautiful symphony, the coherence, the ecology, the nature, the nature that creation has. And he goes on to say, the church believes the environment is not just out there, but it's in here, inside of our bodies. And he said, God, what God established is an ecology, a natural rhythm, and he doesn't want us to spoil it. So, I mean, talk about, you know, uh, uh, terms that really resonate with the young people, you know, the climate, the ecology, it's worth you looking at, okay? You know, so one of the key focuses as we move on in that pre-Cana day is we talk about how we're made, each made Imago day and how that relates to married love. Now, um, interestingly, in John Paul's Theology of the Body, when he puts his um, explanation onto why the procreative and unitive meanings are in fact true, is he appeals to scripture and particularly the Genesis text, the two creation stories. The first one from Genesis 1, the second one from Genesis 2, which is also um, reaffirmed by Jesus in the New Testament. Now, you know, there are a lot of young people who don't want to hear anyone quoting scripture. And if that's the case, okay. But if they're open to scripture, I'm going to just jump us out to those and let you look at a minute. And you can see um, a little bit of the roots. I'm hoping this is all working. I click on here, it should take me out to the internet. The roots of where that procreative and unitive meaning comes from. So I'm just going out to the USCCB. Um, I should probably do Genesis 2 first, but I'm going to do Genesis 1, you know, which is the creation story in six days. And so here's that Genesis 20, uh, 1, 26 to 28. It's the sixth day where God makes human beings in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I mean, all of those points come across in Precana. The whole idea of male and female from birth were created in God's image, which is in many other places, but this is where we, we uh, recall it. God blessed them and said, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So you can see hints of that procreative directive right here. Now, this creation story is also tied to the second creation story. And in fact, in Genesis 2.24, that is actually the definition of marriage. But when you go to that 2.24, you know, you know, Adam says, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for out of this, out of man, this one has been taken. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. And the two of them become one body, one flesh. So we see hints of that unitive meaning of marriage and the marital act. Um, if we go back, just having read that, because, you know, some people don't believe in the Old Testament. <laughs> so we'll go to Jesus's words, chapter 19, where the Pharisees are testing him about divorce. Okay. He says, have you not read from the beginning that the creator made them male and female? 
Okay, so here's Genesis 1. And for that reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2, the unitive meaning. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, um, what God has joined together, and I can't see my bars, no human being must separate. So those Genesis texts, along with Jesus's affirmation, is a good way to kind of relate the procreative and unitive meanings. And John Paul does a great um, reflection and meditation using those creation stories. So violations of sexual love, anything that separates or excludes one of those two meanings, because they must both be there. Oops. So premarital, non-marital, and I didn't think I needed to put up an extramarital sex because what you're taking out is the unitive aspect. Okay, you probably are taking out the procreative aspect if you know you're on birth control. But at this point, you're not united with your spouse. Contraception takes out the procreative uh, meaning. Artificial conception actually does the reverse. It says, "I don't need the the sex. I just want the baby." And so that brings us to the in vitro fertilization and the surrogate motherhood. And one other piece I'm going to tell you about this is right where I'm going to show you later where the Cardinals video is on our um, NFP FABM uh, webpage is Father Michael Schmitz from Ascension Press, who does it. He, he speaks very quickly, uh, but he tries to explain how contraception and, and artificial conception or in vitro and surrogate motherhood are really the same violation. They're both taking out one of those meanings, which also homosexual unions take that out, as does any lustful and unchaste activity, you know, masturbation, things like that. Um, relative to Imago Dei and what relationship that has, so made in the image of God, what does that mean? Well, the classical definition is um, you have an intellect and a will. So like the angels and like God, you can know the truth, and so you can choose the good as with the angels. Um, so that is true. We're above the animals. And where that comes into play, especially in pre-Cana, is we know that many people and couples are moved by emotion primarily and sometimes emotion alone. There's a low part of soul. We've been gifted with the powers of intellect and will that can guide those passions and emotions to be virtuous. So we try and stress that, that individually we are Imago Dei. Another way that we are Imago Dei or in the image of God is because we were created by or in and for relationship. Um, everybody has a mother. Everybody has a father. Um, just as God is in self-giving relationship with the three persons in the Trinity, we are with others, but most profoundly in marriage. That self-giving relationship of giving between husband and wife closely um mirrors that image of God in relationship, or at least that's how it's meant to be. So we get a little bit of that out, and this Imago Dei uh, is going to come up a little later when we're talking about how we ask them to see um, uh, their marriage. So theology of the body, um, we have a video, and every time you see one of these, there's a video that starts off each section, married love and intimacy. Um, so theology of the body, if you translate it directly, it'd be study of God of the body. Why did God give us bodies? Well, this talks about John Paul's use of 
um, theology of the body. And what we mean by that is, um, you know, God wants us to be, to love him, but we don't know how to love. So he revealed to us how to love. And the clearest um, way that he manifested how to love was sending his son and his son's death and resurrection on the cross. So loving with, within marriage ought to reflect, especially sacramental marriage, that paschal mystery. So every sacrament has a dying and a rising. So just as Jesus died on the cross, we say that loving within marriage ought to represent this because you've gone, you've died to the single life, to beautiful new life in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part. And being open to life, being fertile and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it. So that loving takes on the form of the characteristics that you recall or you should recall from, from Article 9 in Humanae Vitae, which are actually what John or what theology of the body has that kind of ring to. Love is free, total, faithful, and fruitful. And it's kind of like a jingle. Um, those four characteristics of divine love are what we can mirror. So we can say that our love is free because we have a choice. It's an act of the free will. And that choice is based on knowledge, our intellect, not on our emotions. When we take our vows, and by the way, these four characteristics of love are actually reflected in those three questions of consent that the couple answers when they're getting married. You know, do you come here freely and wholeheartedly? There's your free, uh, there's your total, wholeheartedly. The choice that they make is a total gift of self. They're not holding back anything, no secrets, uh, no part of them. It's covenantal, it's body, mind, spirit they're giving. The gift that they give is permanent. It's faithful and exclusive. And it's life-giving or fruitful. Now, these four characteristics characteristics of divine love that we can image or, um, or try to mirror are characteristics both of marriage itself as well as the marital act. And the way you see this is each and every marital act or act of sex ought to be freely chosen. You know what you're getting into. You totally, if you contracept, you're giving not everything one thing for sure you're not giving is you're not giving your fertility and you're withholding it and if you take out one of these characteristics it's not really the love that that we are called to imitate you know it's permanent which is the faithful and exclusive and life giving means you are open to new life not every single act is going to bring life and you also have a choice if you feel that it is not in in uh, the right time or in God's will for you to have children, you can go um, uh, have recourse to the infertile times and still enjoy the rest of that and be within alignment with the teachings of the church. And then, of course, we image Jesus because his love was free when he was at the Garden of Gethsemane and in his agony, he freely chose it. He knew exactly at that point what was going to happen. He totally gave of himself. He could not give any more. It was permanent. He stayed on that cross, and it was life-giving, as we have at least even today in many ways, but one way is through the Eucharist. 
So that's what we try, and that's the theological piece, probably the most theological we do with the couples in pre-Cana, just to get them to think a little bit more about we're not just making this up and we're not just kind of mean people. As you can see, these do come from uh, Humanae Vitae 9 and as well, as well as John Paul's Theology of the Body. Okay. So we say Theology of the Body, really the, the thrust of it is free, total, faithful, and fruitful sex mirrors the love of God leading to our greatest happiness. That's why the church objects to contraception. And natural family planning does respect God's plan because it enables them also to use the science to understand their fertility and determine when they can engage or refrain from the sexual act. Um, this actually is one of the slides, which is why it has our couple reflection. And we let them talk about it. Um, you know, we get good evaluations. If they take away a couple pieces, at least they've heard it one more time with about 100 to 150 more people. Um, one of the one of the slot or one of the videos we do also has to do with NFP and the gift of fertility. It's our longest video. We spend the most time on NFP and on the evaluations. A lot of people will say you spend too much time on NFP. So um, we do do I, the only slide I'm going to put up for you to see is what we is what we try and tell them about how NFP supposedly builds and sustains a healthy marriage. Now, that isn't the case for everybody. In fact, if you go on social media, there's some great social media sites where Catholic couples really striving to follow this teaching will share their stories. They'll ask for prayers from people. You also have people, though, that say, NFP really drove my spouse and I away from each other. And a part of the reason is one of them really wanted to live NFP and the other spouse, and I'm going to just say usually it was the husband, came along for the ride, but in the end, he didn't necessarily buy in. So that's just really a tough cross to carry. And, you know, you know, they just continue to seek prayers on that one, I would say. I mean, it's just tough when they don't both really try to make it work. This was also something when um, that commission was called uh, before uh, Humana Vitae was written, and they had witnessed couples, and there were a number of them that said this really was devastating for a marriage because it, it just drove a wedge between them. So there's both ends. Um, in our pre-cana, you know, we trod gently, we tread gently because, uh, as you'll see in my second um, session on the 26th, about a third of um, people on contraception were put on as teenagers for problems other than contraception. So they have no idea. So we do need to give them the benefit of the doubt. And we'll go into that where they were on it for either menstrual disorders or acne. And, you know, they have no idea about this teaching. So we give them the benefit of the doubt. We have uh, physicians and healthcare uh, people in our pre-canas. And, you know, if you start talking about the carcinogenic effects of, of uh, um, the hormones, the birth control pill, if they don't want to believe, they're going to find a reason not to believe, you know. And it's just kind of like somebody not believing in God. If they really don't want to believe in God, no argument as good as it is that you give them may change their mind. So we hope that this does, and we hope by the time they get out of there um, that they're at least contemplating maybe there is something about this that I don't know and that's all we look to do can we move a 
one tick? Can we get them to even think about it? So we went from faith to what we do in pre-cana. This last section, and we only have, I think, about five more slides left, has to do a little bit more with the reason-based or the science and medicine and technology. And I'll start tonight, and we pick up with really greater detail the second one, but um, 1968 to 2018 was our 50 years. So we're in the uh, 52nd year. So in 2018, we got all the way to December, we had a Humane Vitae 50th anniversary conference. And it was put on by the Adult Faith Formation Office and the Family Life Office. And we really put some thought into what do we want this conference to be 50 years later? What, where have we faltered? Where can we find some new growth? And we've got uh, some tremendous uh, presenters, um, two doctors, uh, one of the women that you're going to see. So these next slides, I'm going to show you some of the people that were there and how you can actually access their work. Now, on your slide or on your handout, you also have um, this bottom section. And I'm going to actually take you there in a minute so you can see that. But just to not clutter the slide, I'm going to take it off. So Dr. Martin Owen... Uh, I believe he's 37 years old this year, maybe 38. Uh, he's, he actually has his eighth child on the way. Uh, he's a family physician. He uh, focuses and uh, really works with um, NFP. He actually has a connection to Pope Paul VI. It's an interesting one. If you want to look at the video, I show you, you could. But he said, we need to look at a roadmap, where we came from and where we're going. And can we read the signs of the times and take the opportunities in today's societal shifts to promote this? So what he put out there was, you know, natural family planning, that's our fertile soil. I mean, we had some giants, some Catholic doctors and scientists who paved the way, they did some groundbreaking research and came up with these different natural family planning methods, which we're gonna talk about in a few minutes. That ought to be our fertile soil because it's the basis for our fertility awareness-based methods or FABMs, which he's calling new seeds. Now, these can almost be identified as one and the same, but really a little bit of the difference is the natural family planning has our moral perspective on it, you know? You know, you can have, um, uh, engage in the sex act, um, and if you're not quite sure that you're fertile or not, you can use a condom. That would not be a natural family planning perspective. It could be a perspective if you were going somewhere where they were promoting fertility awareness-based methods, because this one, if you just look at the term, is more health, medical, biology-based. This one just deals with the science and technology, or science and um, the medicine. But the goodness is NFP um, is becoming mainstream. So this gift that we've been giving through our Catholic doctors and scientists now is being used by the secular world because this is growing by leaps and bounds. And a lot of it just has to do with adding new levels of automation. From here grows Femtech, which he calls fresh fertilizer, where now you've got sensors and software. So instead of the, the woman doing all of the manual observation, and one example is taking your temperature every morning with a thermometer, okay? 
there is a sensor in a watch or bracelet that you can wear every night. And actually it's better because when you take your basal body temperature one time in the morning, um, it's one data point. When you have on that sensor, you're getting continuous temperatures. And actually scientists have found that your basal body temperature is not actually that waking temperature. It's more uh, an hour or two earlier. So the data is getting better and along with um, algorithms and predicting things are gonna get better. So you, that convenience is being built back in. Um, let me take you to just, I wanna show you where this is so you can go back and find it at another time. So um, this is our website and it's our natural family planning site. Oops, I'm sorry, it's our addition, our, uh, everybody must be on the internet. Okay, so this is our website. There are different sections. We didn't put it under our NFP. We put it under additional resources um, and just follow the link. Now, this link up here has a few extra phrases, which you don't need, which is why it's not on the link that I've given you. But the second item in here is Humane Vitae 50th Conference videos. So if you open that up, it tells you when we did it. There's a little bit of the message that I kind of stole a little bit from my thesis. Click here to view the videos. So when we go, now this was a whole day conference. Uh, we did videotape it, you know, left out all breaks and things like that. So here are six videos. On the first one, I do want to tell you if anybody's here from the Bridgeport Diocese, um, in this first one, we have Father Paul Check, who, uh, very good friend, he, he agreed to do the chastity piece of this, and he kicked off the conference. So he's in this first one. This is Dr. Marguerite Duane, who um, is the last slide that we're going to cover tonight. Here is Cassie Moridiardi and her husband, who uh, hopefully you'll become familiar with. She's in your handouts for the second uh, or the October 26th presentation I'll do. Um, this is one I think where we have Anna Halpin, but this is not her, but she's in here. Uh, we show our NFP video. Here's Dr. Martin Owen, okay, Humane Vita. And you can't really read the, the small letters, but reading the signs of the time. This physician uh, has a love for both the old and the new, and he truly is um, a great young doctor. So if you get a chance, now that one's an hour, but it really gets you to where the young people, you might be able to get them to um, take a look at this and realize, okay, the church isn't so outdated. We are continually updating. So that's the path he followed, that he said, look, we have so much to be proud of. Um, let's just kind of take advantage of the shift to fertility awareness-based methods and femtech, because you could still be in alignment with church teaching using these, which is the great thing. If we can move these people to the, the biology and the scientific and the technology base, it's less of a move to get to the theological and the actual commitment to the daily um, work it takes. Doctor, our, our um screens could not could not see the website you were referring to so the link ah. is there, but we couldn't see the actual um web page itself just so you know thank you 
Interesting. No, I didn't know that. Um, you know, I know why I think, but, um, so the link on the bottom of your, that handout, that link will take you there. If we have time, I can take you there at the end. I think I'll have enough time, but we'll see. Because okay. it would be good. Because I think a part of the, your ministry, as we go through here, I and mean, this is all information for you and probably for you alone. Nobody really cares, especially the young people. You need to be convicted, though, and have that understanding. But um, what contribution could you make? And maybe you figure out from you know who you are and what your strengths and weaknesses are, how might you move somebody to do one piece? And one thing you can do, especially if you're preparing them for marriage, is assign them some homework. Okay, it's a great thing between meetings. And you tell them, I want you to go to this website, watch this, and come back and tell me what you thought, you know? Uh, so for that reason, I think it would be good. Okay, I'm going to do a couple other things here from a timeline standpoint. And here's where we're getting a little bit more into the science, but I want to make sure that the science is aligned with what's happened in the church, okay? So over here on the left, um, can I just ask you, can you see my mouse moving? Yes. Yeah, okay, great, yeah. great. Okay. So up on the top, we have what's happened in Christianity. Down on the bottom, what discoveries and developments have gone on at the same time, and how has this affected things? Now, there's going to be a couple different overlays on here, so you'll be able to follow. I take certain things off the screen to make it easier to read. So here's our Costa Canubi, Vatican II, Humanae Vitae, Amoris Laetitia. I did add that encyclical from uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth, which had to do about uh, with marriage. Also, he didn't didn't talk too much about um, you know the the ban on contraception, but he did talk about more about staying married, the, the uh, fidelity and exclusiveness. But when when uh, Pius the Eleventh wrote Costa Canubi. He did it somewhat in honor of the 50th anniversary of this one, okay? And since I needed these dates to bring out this, I thought I would add it. Um, okay, so if you look down at the bottom, red are, are developments that were already out there. So condoms were already mass produced because, you know, Goodyear already had their, their rubber vulcanized and, and working. You know, we had tubal ligations back then. Um, I will tell you that vasectomies were also... Um, done way back then, but it wasn't af until after Vatican II that it was really um, approved for contraception. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting, don't you? <laughs> uh, the first IUD was also back then. I mean, it's amazing. Now, IUDs have been made from silkworm, from different kinds of steels um, and metals. Uh, today, they're made of plastic, and we'll get a little bit more into that, and copper, um, but they tried just about everything, and and uh, they really did have their challenges and their um, uh, consequences to women. But the big thing that happened was this. This is the green meaning growth. The scientists figured out the timing of ovulation. I can't stress that enough. This ovulation is key and going forward what you're going to see is it's now considered a fifth vital sign for women um, the fact that she ovulates and how her ovulation is they also started realizing how hormones work 
Now, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to overlay the natural family planning methods as they developed. And for now, I'm going to leave these documents in here so you can see some of the reasoning behind it. So the calendar method is the same as the rhythm method. And basically, it had to do with time. So if you look at them discovering the timing of ovulation, you know, the most simple thing is to kind of say, shoot, that becomes pretty easy. You know, you just calculate numbers of days and the calendar method had a huge failure rate. However, it did slow the population. This only works because they figured out that ovulation ha happens somewhere around the middle of your, uh, the beginning and the end of your menstrual cycle. So they just took 28 days divided by two and, you know, you add a couple days on each end and it works. Now, the calendar method actually had, uh, and the rhythm method, a formula that works. And I can't quite remember what it is. Nevertheless, only if you were someone that had a really regular uh, menstrual cycle, like you never varied from 28 days or 30 days, would this really be that successful for you? Um, when we hear people talk, the secular world, including physicians, about how natural family planning is not good, they absolutely disregard all of this development and go back to here. And there was a 20, at, at this point, we can say there is about a 24% failure rate, which is failure. I would probably say very few people use this. What using this might mean is they're somewhat counting days and kind of throwing a dart to say, yeah, we're pretty close, um, you know, which, which isn't real successful. But shortly after that, so we're into the 30s, basal body temperature method was developed. Now, they, dis they discovered after timing that temperature was a big deal, and it currently is. And there's kind of a debate today between which of the, I'm going to say, two key signs are the best ones for figuring out your data or your timing of ovulation and your fertile window? One of them is temperature. One of them is cervical fluid. Now, temperature is great, except your temperature rises after ovulation. So it does you no good to know afterwards. What it does do is it confirms ovulation. So, so that is one point. However, with the technology now and with a little bit of artificial intelligence, it's not, the, it's not perfect, but it is growing with huge investments. You can look at months and years of data with that temperature and come pretty close. Okay. So just kind of keep that in mind. But that was 1935, so that was um, right after Costi Canubi. The symptothermal method, 1951, so that's before Vatican II. This is still in use today. I don't know if you're familiar with Couple to Couple League. That is the um, method that they endorse. So Couple to Couple League is not a method. It's an organization that promotes a symptothermal method. And Real quick, what the symptom is, is it uses temperature as a data point, but it uses another symptom, and that symptom is cervical fluid. So it's kind of like a double check. Um, some people think it's great, and what I will tell you right now is there is no one perfect method, 
every woman based on her circumstances, her age, her health, her desires, her family life, will choose a method that will work best for her. So the people that we have that recommend methods need to know more than just one. Um, so let me just leave you with that. The Billings ovulation method is a cervical fluid method where you simply check, a woman checks when she goes to the restroom, the cervical fluid um, that she's secreting. Um, she doesn't touch anything. It's just, you know, you'll, you know, you'll see pictures of, well, I'm gonna make sure that we can see those websites because I do wanna show you. This is a very simple method. It's, it checks one um, sign that you observe every single day. Again, I'm going to say it was developed by uh, a husband and wife physician team, uh, John and Evelyn Billings in Australia, um, and it's still used. What's making it better is the use of apps. Okay, so they're taking this foundational method and the Kandara app. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a great one. It lets people use it and they're successful checking one kind of uh, observation. So again, this was already developed by the time of Vatican II. So things are looking kind of good. These people who are developing these have relationships with, with the Pope and um, you know the, the, uh, the bishops surrounding him saying, this is working. The meth, you know, we do believe that natural family planning is workable and is doable. So then we have Humane Vitae, Vatican II and Humane Vitae. After that, we get the Creighton model developed, which is more comp it's a more comprehensive Billings ovulation method. Um, it's a little bit more expensive. We recommend it more for women who are having issues with getting pregnant uh, because it takes a lot more time. And um, that's where we what's promoted at the Gianna Center in New York City and across the country. The Marquette method, Again, this was developed at Marquette University. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it later. I'm going to find my mouse. The Marquette method, I'm going to tell you it's, it's called the symptohormonal method, and I'll just leave it at that. Both of these are symptohormonal methods. These are all still in use, and apps and Femtech are only making them better. Okay? So those are natural family planning methods, but they're also FABMs. Now, I'm gonna come down to the bottom and I'm gonna take some of that stuff off of there. Here's what's happening and where the society is going and how we can take advantage of some of these societal trends. Now, um, one thing I, I forgot to tell you when I switched to these um, NFP methods is I changed what this sidebar was. So in, in, originally I had a, what was happening in the Christian world now it was, it's changed to NFP or FABM knowledge methods. And the key here and the value for women is when you use these methods, you, you really do two things. You either are successful or you're trying to avoid or achieve pregnancy. But the second thing is you're gaining knowledge about your body and your health. It's called body literacy now. And, um, you know, so many, I mean, just look around at all the people at Fitbits, all of these things are being built into those because it's where people are going. Down below, this is instead of developments and discoveries, it's products, 
procedures, and technology. Can you guys see my little bar at the bottom or not? I don't know if I just see that. Um, no, doctor, you don't see okay, it. Okay, thank you. So here's, here's how this stuff happened. You know, the FDA approved the birth control pill or oral contraceptive pill actually in the United States in 1957, but again, that was um, only approved for menstrual disorders, heavy uh, menstrual cycles, painful menstrual cycles, irregular menstrual cycles, acne. Um, and it's interesting, if you look at the, the literature, how many more women seem to start having menstrual disorders at that point? <laughs> It was in 1960 that they approved it for contraceptive reasons, okay, which is why on the previous chart we show 1960. Also in 1960, um, there was the first plastic IUD, um, or which is also a LARC. Now, IUDs have come a long way. Again, they're very small. You know, the ramifications of the, the IUDs is they can perforate your uterus. They're actually inserted, you know, up through the vaginal canal, a doctor has to do it. You, you don't feel it. But again, they have their um, uh, ramifications. I mean, you have pain and painful menstrual cycles for some amount of time. Um, you know, you have some of the other, and what it does is there are hormones that are constantly being emitted, just like with the birth control pill, which are the synthetic hormones being constantly omit, or emitted that's what's happening with this. Now, there is a new one on the market. I don't know if you watch TV and you see the uh, copper IUD by Paragard, and it's a real uplifting, dancing, you know, Paragard, Paragard, the best birth control, you know, whatever it is. I mean, it's really uplifting. They promote that they don't uh, use hormones in their IUD. They use copper. Now, one of the ways that the IUDs work, IUDs do work is, they, they, you know, emit hormones the way the pill or the patch or the implants do. But what they also do, because they're, it's like a, a T sitting up in uh, your uterus, it alters the way the sperm travels so that they can't reach the egg, okay? Um, by emitting the hormones when they do do, they do a number of things, which I'll tell you about on, uh, on the following Monday once we get to it. Now, these are all being developed they are not without their problems. Right, I'm gonna make sure I don't forget to uh, tell you that. So uh, even though the birth control pill and that the plastic IUD, you know, was you know approved in '60, by 1969 they were already having all of the um, uh, bad effects, side effects of blood clots, strokes. Um, heart attacks, depression, weight gain, loss of libido, and it continued, okay? They ultimately had a high-dose uh, birth control pill that they took off the market, but a newer, lower-dose one came on. We're still in the, you know, 2020, and there are still side effects. Now, again, what I would, what I would tell you is it's really difficult to talk about the side effects um, for example, we're standing in front of a class of 150 because you've got some women there who are on the pill who suffer none of those side effects. You, we also see women who are not on the birth control pill 
who have those same symptoms. One big one is migraine headaches. So, um, you know, it's, it's just tough. But what we find is there is a discontinuation rate more and more with people who are on both the pill, the patch, the implant, the IUD, who start it, experience those negative symptoms, get off of it, see that they do feel much better, and they never go back on again. And that's a great opportunity for us to say there is something better. Um, one other thing about the birth control pill that I don't have on the slide, in 1997, it was actually approved for the treatment of acne. Um, now next, or the 26th, I'm gonna put up some slides that FEM used. And it is so difficult because the standard treatment of care for acne in teens is the birth control pill. You know, there's so much work to be done and it's approved and it works. Some of the side effects, the, the gals love. So um, again, we've got lots of work to do. Now, where the growth is happening, that I think we could be optimistic, but we have to be a little bit cautious, is when smartphones, start, smartphones started emerging in the 90s, and this is where we get what we call the iGen generation because the iPhone came out. Um, you know, right along after that, we have the smartphone apps. And apps are not only, you know, some people have them, some don't. They were integral to um, that age of people's lives. So if you can take something that's important and integrate it into an app, that's, that's where you're going to see the use. And that's where FABMs came into play. And we should consider that a positive. From there also, you know, we come up with the wearables and the sensors, and that's the Femtech. And I, I will show you some, not tonight, but um, it is a great opportunity. It is. So just to kind of wrap up a little bit about FABMs and NFP, again, sometimes the more traditional term NFP is used along and in place, along with or in place of FABM or simply FAM. In the, strictly, in the strictest sense of the term, FABM really is only talking about the science biological aspect. However, what we've seen quite a bit of is we have a lot of Catholics out there working in the secular world, seeing all of this, and they're, you know, they want to practice good medicine without having to use the term Catholic. That's such a gift. So FABMs can be used as natural family planning, but they can also be used to monitor a woman's reproductive health, which is where the secular world also has picked up with the Fitbits and the Apple Watches and things like that. Both NFP and FABMs are methods of family planning which external and internal signs or biomarkers are combined with an effective set of instructions to help identify times of a woman's cycle when pregnancy can and cannot occur. So, um, the external and internal signs or symptoms or biomarkers are temperature, cervical fluid, there's a few more urinary metabolites, which are detected through um, urinary strips, kind of like pregnancy tests that you can do at home. Very, very advantageous because they're very objective. Um, so every day, the way NFP and FABMs work again is you have to commit to a daily routine, like brushing your teeth. And 
these biomarkers or signs, temperature, cervical fluid, those are combined with a set of instructions. So how many times do you check your cervical fluid um, with your temperature? You have to make sure you have, I think it's four hours of sleep. Um, you know, we're presuming you did not drink the night before. You did not take any extra medications. Um, you do not have an illness. You didn't get the flu or a cold. The goodness with the uh, technology and FABMs is you can take out any of those irregular things and still continue to gather that data. Finally, um, the term NF and NFP, you know, highlights that we don't use artificial barriers or chemicals and truly that both spouses share responsibility for the decision. So if, you, if you're preparing someone, a couple for marriage, you know, kind of pay attention to, you know, I'm going to say, I want to say primarily the husband, but I, I get, or the, fian, the male fiancé, but I guess I could be wrong. I've seen cases actually, um, yeah, where it was the husband or the fiancé, husband-to-be, that learned about NFP in a Catholic high school and convinced his wife to start researching it. And lo and behold, she became the hero and supporter of it more than him. So uh, getting them somehow, somehow both on board is really positive. So as we wrap up this, and then I'll show you one last slide if I can pull up the, um, uh, the internet. So we have our traditional NFP classifications and manual methods. Now, I don't know how much of this you guys know or not. I'm, I'm just going on and on as though Maybe you do, maybe you don't, maybe I'll wait for questions. But there are three key types of classifications or methods. One is where a woman checks her cervical mucus and then documents it or charts it. And sometimes her husband prefers to chart it for her. There is a symptothermal method, which combines this as the symptom with temperature and perhaps another a marker like um, position of the cervix or timing. And then very getting very popular is the symptohormonal method, which combines cervical mucus with uh, the hormones that are manifested through those urine strips. And I will tell you that home monitoring now is getting to be um, uh, very, very popular. And there are billions being invested into some of this femtech technology. So that's going to simply grow. What happens is levels of automation are being added. So they're integrating these processes into a young woman's tech-centric lifestyle. Now, we're getting pretty much the millennials in our pre-canas. But what we need to start thinking about are those generations coming after them who, you know, are still in high school. And what would be great is that you know, pre-cana is a little late to be teaching this stuff, although you take the moment that you can and make the best of it. Best would be, can we get um, the young people when they're entering puberty, thereabouts, or in high school, if you have to you know, move it up and start teaching them about this. So the femtech industry is exploding. The image is good here. This is an image of femtech where the woman is wearing, I think this is an, uh, it's called an AVA bracelet. It's checking multiple um, uh, data points, pulse, um, core body temperature, respirations, all of this. When she gets up, she takes her, I'm going to say bracelet, they, they don't call it a watch, 
and through Bluetooth, it connects to her smartphone, goes up into the cloud, and then on your, they're all connected to an app on your smartphone. So you're able to see every day, is, is today fertile? Is tomorrow fertile? You know, and it allows you to kind of get some control of your, of your marital, your sexual life. And hopefully if you're not married, you know, you still are interested in your, in, you know, in your reproductive life. Now I realize we're talking a lot about women here and the female. Um, something that um, is being seen quite a bit is, and for a couple reasons, um, we're seeing more and more infertility. Almost, if you think about it, you know, when you think of a pre-canine class, you know, some, sometimes what comes to mind is, you know, you know, don't have premarital sex, you know, because you don't want to get pregnant, and people are avoiding pregnancy. It's switching now. I mean, women are getting, couples are getting married older. And if they've been on birth control for a good number of years, it does affect things in their body, including their cervical fluid, um, which is necessary for, for them to get pregnant. So that's one aspect. But we're also seeing that men's infertility is also on the rise. Um, so kind of keep that in mind. Femtech. Today, there's an app and sensor for almost everything. So young tech-centric women, naturally and easily, second nature, use apps to manage their fertility, their pregnancy, and help them begin their parenting. The key here is to understand where organizations are going relative to healthcare. So a company, and there's there's one I will show you uh, on the 26th, that they catch a woman, they've got an app, they monitor her while she's not pregnant, um, just during her fertility, when she gets pregnant, they're monitoring her, but not only monitoring her, supporting her. So when she's not sure of something, they're on the other end of that line or on the other end of that chat, they're to help her. When she gets pregnant, after she gets pregnant and has her baby, they're there with the baby apps. And a lot of young women use baby, baby trackers, baby apps. I mean, things I would have never dreamed of doing with my kids. But something important for some of us boomers is it doesn't come naturally to us. I mean, for, for the millennials and younger, it's just natural, you know? Um, okay. This is the last slide for tonight. I was also going to take you to a website. So I think I know why it's not showing. So I'm going to show you this and then, jump out a little bit if you'll allow me to, to show you those websites a little bit but this is great facts now um i want to show you the title of our humana vitae 50th anniversary conference but facts is an organization and it stands for fertility appreciation collaborative to teach the science uh this was a presentation also at our 50th anniversary conference, Dr. Marguerite Duane was the doctor who created FACTS. She's from Highland, Highland Heights or Highland Hills? Highland Mills. She's from Highland Mills, New York, born and raised here. Um, she went to medical school, became a family physician, prescribed contraceptives for her patients. She's in her 40s, early 40s. Okay, that's her age today. Um, she's at George Wash or um, Georgetown University now, and she was practicing uh, medicine, prescribing these contraceptives. You know, her, her 
her patients would come back, have problems, she'd prescribe a different pill and so on and so forth. One of her nurses who happened to be a Catholic nurse, or one of her nurses, a Catholic nurse said, have you ever thought of natural family planning? And she said, no, I've never heard of it. So more and more she explores it and she realizes in good conscience, she can never prescribe birth control again. So um, she actually leaves practice. Now her husband's a physician too, and he allowed her to start FACS. And the mission of FACS is to teach health and medical personnel or medical um, people the science of natural family planning. What she's done is survey over survey and she realizes medical students were never taught about this stuff. And so her mission really is to educate the physicians and healthcare personnel. And we need that because even if we can um, convert or have a conversion of some of those couples, you know, before pre-cana, during pre-cana, in the early years of marriage, when you go to a physician, unless it's a Catholic physician, they're going to send you away after your first child with birth control. And you almost have to fight to get it, to, to, I don't want it. So Marguerite Duane's mission is we're going to take care of the medical field. You know, everybody has to do their part. So she created this organization um, and this comes from her website. And what you can see on it is the different methods. And I thought this was a good way for you to see them. You know, cervical fluid, which is mucus only methods. Here you have the Billings, which was really the first one, the Creighton. There's a couple others. I'm not real familiar with these. We, we only put these two on our website. I will tell you, some of them have an asterisk by it, and that's because they had done evidence-based um, research. Um, but not all of them. Like, for example, we promote FEM, and they don't have one. But that's because they came in the game late. They did not need to invest um, funding in what has already been proven. So that's why they don't have it. But we have our cervical fluid method, our symptothermal, which is the fluid plus the temperature, plus or minus the calendar timing. But they also do uh, other signs. So you really have the big one is couple to couple league. Uh, and SymptoPro are the two that you know we really uh, uh, pay attention to. Taking charge of your fertility is growing pretty quickly, though. The only way Marguerite Duane will put them on here is if she can prove that they're um, they're evidence based and that um, they won't prescribe contraception. Which is why we'll allow her on our website because we've got to make sure um, we do do a disclaimer that if any of them do. Um, uh, recommend use of uh, condoms during the fertile or infertile period that it is against church teaching. Uh, there are some calendar methods that work. Again, they're simplistic. I know a lot of you know poor, poor people or third world countries will use some of these because it's better than not using anything. Um, Femme and Marquette, two very good methods that they have their hormonal and they use urinary strips. So these were hers. I'm going to take you out of here, I think, because my next slide was, so shall we call it an evening? <laughs> so what we can do is I can actually stop my share. Let me see, we have a couple of chats. Oh, okay. Yeah, nobody saw it. 
Um, we can do questions, but I can also reshare my screen in a different way that I think I can get those websites. It's about not quite a quarter to nine. Can we, can we do that real quickly? And then at the same time, we can entertain any questions. Sure. Thank you. Okay, let me, let me reshare. Let me reshare from here. Okay. Now I think I can go back at this point. Can you see it? Yes, you can see it, doctor. Yep. Okay. All right. So this is that additional um, resources where Dr. Martin Owen was and the Humane Vitae slides. So again, you just need to follow the link on your page. If you look in the address bar, this piece is not on your page. You don't need it, but they couldn't take it away. So the link you have on your sheet takes you right here. And these are just additional resources other than NFP and marriage prep, which is why we put them on this sheet. Your Humani Vitae conference videos. Just a little blurb about it. Click here to view the videos. <clears throat> and then here are the six videos from that day. So here's the one where Father Check is from Bridgeport. Here's Marguerite Duane. I mean, hers was an hour and nine. She's fabulous, though. If you really, really want to learn more, uh, follow her. And then here's Dr. Martin. He's the last one. We decided he would wrap it up. Um, here's Cassie and her husband, who I listed on your uh, resource page, but we'll cover uh, the next session. Um, you can see nice and young. She just really is good with the couples. So when we don't want to risk losing them, we'll let them talk to her. And she is on retainer with us, so uh, good for you to know. While I'm out there, um, let me just take you to the, so this is our, this is the Archdiocese website, and I'm going to go to Family Life. Seems a little bit slow for some reason, too. Okay, so there's our four icons. Uh, you can get to NFP, fertility awareness. And what, what you'll notice is we're putting the fertility first, fertility awareness. Uh, or we can choose it from the menu. But once you go in there, you know, this takes us to the regular site, but we have a special place for the training and educators. And usually that's where we send people um, to get specific training for a method. I don't want to take away my steam from the October 26th. So I want to take one more place here. This is our NF, our fertility awareness NFP page. And we've chosen to put you know, the technology at top here. We're, we're looking to get that young person. But we stick with explaining God's vision. Here is that Cardinal Dolan video. Okay. It's not even two minutes. So you can watch that on your own. And I mean, it's some, it's a good argument. It's a healthy argument to use. And then here's another one that we put on there. Um, Father Michael Schmitz from Ascension Press. This one's a little longer, but, and he talks very fast, but he tries to explain them and it's okay. I mean, the, the key is he's young 
he tells couples he didn't get it either in the beginning. He thought it was a ridiculous teaching of the church. And then here are, you know, here are, you know, the categories that we've used. And then, of course, you know, contact us. So you always know you can find someone there. And we have a young, a young woman and a young man, just in case somebody doesn't want to talk to one or the other of the sexes. Thank you for, for listening to me and paying attention. Hopefully you're still awake. Any questions, guys, for Dr. Doctor, or anything that was not clear in the presentation? All this is available on, in Spanish as well, right? The, the website? Right. So uh, actually, in Spanish, um, they can get to it. Um, I, I can show you, I can tell you, it is in Spanish. Do you mind if I show you real quickly? No, go ahead. All right. Since you asked, I appreciate you asking. Um, I did see a link. In Spanish? Yes, I did. Let me just come, I'm gonna come here real quickly. Okay, so for Spanish, um, can you see my screen? Yes. Okay, so, so there's a couple ways to get to it. We have Family Life, and then we also created a separate one for Family Life Vita Familia, but you can also get to it from, from this website. So if I just take it from here, yes, whoever said that, um, you can go in through, let me see if I have to click. Uh, you can come into other programs. And the thing about um, Spanish and the thing about NFP, they have asked us with our marriage prep to have an English and a Spanish with the same content. And so we did that. So that makes it easy. With NFP, you can't do it because there are different resources. And that's a key piece. So our NFP uh, Spanish, a little different. Okay, we have a Spanish programs coordinator. She's going on maternity leave on Friday. So we've got a backup to handle primarily NFP. We're starting to get an awful lot of calls, which is so rewarding. So um, I think this is it. I mean, I, I, so here's her FABMs versus um, or, or, or NFP. And her links are a little different than ours, but yes, there is, there is Spanish to answer that question. And may I add, uh, the Spanish young couples, they're very up to date with our technology also. And so they, I don't think they'll have much of a problem navigating through this uh, resources. They're, are you telling me that they're up to date or you're asking me? I, 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 no, I'm saying it. I'm saying, saying it. That's my experience. Good, good. Well, you know what we're finding is, um, uh, Lucas, the um, the young ones are, for our pre-canis, we have more kind of validating couples and they're older and it's a little tougher. Um, but yeah, the young couples, they're, they're right on with their cell phones. So it's ringing true for them. 
what we do is, uh, and I don't want to take steam away from my other, we do still every year do NFP Awareness Week, which falls in that uh, July 25th week. And we usually say it's NFP Awareness Month to get as many people as we can. I mean, the first year I did it, I wondered, do we have to limit from a budget perspective? You don't get an awful lot of people. But little by little, they're coming more and more. Um, and uh, so, you know, we just kind of need to keep pushing. It'll, it'll grow. We also have NFP doctors who are Spanish speaking and NFP educators who are also. So all goodness. Great. Thanks, Doctor. It's wonderful tonight. We appreciate this. Okay. Well, if you think of anything between now and October 26th, if, if Father's going to let me come back, um, so the last year's class, when we were in person, we had our coloring pencils and charts. Um, remember? <laughs> I remember. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so we're not going to do that, but we'll show you some charts and let you see some of the nitty gritty. Um, and I, I think there's opportunity for you in your ministry um, you know, to, to do the step that works best for you and know that there are places, you know, you can do one step and move a couple. And part of that might literally just mean, you know, referring them to our office or um, finding something that they can do as homework, what it is what I think is goodness. So, and, and getting them to just at least think perhaps there might be something good out there in that. Great. All right, gentlemen, thanks so much for being here tonight. Dr. Dr. Thank you as well, of course, for leading us tonight in our lecture and conversation. And uh, if any questions come up in the course of the next couple of weeks, guys, please you know, let us know and throw it out there. And we'll resume on October 19th when the paper is due. Dr. Ed Meckman leading us in the realities of assisted suicide in New York and the legal issues with euthanasia is coming up in our own time period right now. Okay. So have a great Columbus Day, and we'll see you all in two weeks. Thank you. Bye, Thanks, Bye Joe.